Well, good morning, church. Glad that you're here. I'm glad to be home. It's a whole lot more fun hanging out with Don all week than eating shrimp and oyster on the Gulf. You know, <laughs> I should have brought him a shell. I actually thought about him when I was slurping down a few oysters, you know, but I didn't think about you long. <laughs> I, uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here. I really am. I, uh, I, if you're a guest today, we want to welcome you. We thank you for choosing to come. We pray the Lord will bless you today and challenge you a little bit. Uh, good to see all the young people up on the tr- Turn around and look at our young people. Isn't that so cool? Hey, guys, gals. Yeah. Um, I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 3, I hope you brought your, I said to our preteens the other day, your Bible, your iPad, or your iPhone. Uh, but let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And let me tell you what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks. This started out as one sermon. It, as I studied, it kind of grew into three, and now it's ended up as four. And I want to talk to you on the next four weeks on the subject of these last days. What are the last days going to look like? If we live in a culture that seems to jettison God so much, so quickly then how can we identify the last days? And more importantly than identification is how do we react? How do we, uh, if we know that the last days will be challenging, then I think it's incumbent upon us as a church to ask the question, how do we know it? How do we identify it? How do we address it in the church? How do we react to it? And that's kind of where my heart has been for the last, well, on vacation as I kind of read a little bit, tried to study a little bit. Over the last several weeks, though, uh, I've just been appalled, dear people, at uh, some of the things I think we're seeing in our country and uh, the speed of which it's happening. And it's just appalling to me. It's God has just pressed my heart about it. And as I was away from you for a week, I, I just felt God's impression that we kind of need to address it, hence Second Timothy chapter 3 for the next, uh, next four weeks. I have to tell you as I get older, my heroes of the faith are becoming smaller. One of them that, that's, that's becoming very intrinsic in my life is the life of Martin Luther. God used a monk uh, to usher into what we call the Great Reformation, bringing the church out of the Dark Ages into what's known as the Great Reformation. He was a monk in Roman Catholicism. He wrestled with the question of authority. And his contention was that total authority must rest with God's word. Not the Pope. Not church tradition. Not religious organization. But God and his word alone. The reformation of the church was primarily a movement to recapture biblical authority. Who is really in charge and how that should be reflected in God's people. Some say that when he stood before Rome at the Diet of Worms, he said, and there's been some discussion about exactly what he said, but basically he said something like this. I am captive to the word of God. Here I stand. God help me. And dear people of Indian Springs Baptist Church of Bryan, Arkansas, 
We who claim the name of Jesus Christ, we who say that we have been purchased through the blood of a cross, through the atonement of the Lord Jesus, who suffered and died on a cross for our sins, we of all people should stand and join with Him and say, I am captive. My heart is captive, not to religion, but to the Word of God. Here I stand. God, help me. I believe the church today is faced with a similar challenge. I want to ask you, who is really in authority? You see, I don't think the question facing our nation today is really a question of economics. I don't think it's a question of politics. I think it's a question that has to deal with spiritual things, a spiritual nature of people. And when you do that and you, you believe that it boils down to, well then, if it's a spiritual issue, who's really in charge? Is it God's Word? And if it is God's Word, then is it worthy of our obedience even unto death? Or do we give in? Do we follow our desires, our whims, our or perhaps our, our feelings? Do we follow ungodly leaders driven to ungodly pursuits for ungodly gain, even to the destruction of a nation? Where do we, dear people, where do we at some point stand and we say, enough, here I stand, I will not compromise. Over the course of these weeks, as God has been stirring my heart, I, I've just been captured with Paul's last words to Timothy. Timothy's pastoring probably in Ephesus. Ephesus was an unusual town. It was a, a wonderful Christian community. It became a wonderful Christian community. I believe it, it was a part of the flow of the gospel westward. Very important and strategic in the spread of the gospel, but Ephesus was a city of paganism. And so what Paul does when he writes to Timothy, he said, Timothy, I want you to understand some things. It's not easy out there, and it's going to get a little more difficult. Not a little bit, it's going to get more difficult. Timothy, I want you to understand that ministry has never been easy. And as time marches on, it's even going to get even harder. Gang, you may not have thought about this, but when Paul, now in prison now, getting ready to have his life squished out, when Paul wrote this letter, Jesus Christ had only been gone for 35 years. Think about it. In 35 years, heretics were already worming their way into leadership positions. Error was already creeping into the church. The Bible was already being set aside. Biblical convictions was already being, being supplanted by feelings, driving passions, personal agendas. So Paul writes one more letter before he dies. In chapter 3, I believe is strategic to what he's trying to get across. Let me... Let me kind of give you my outline for the next three weeks, okay? That means you can't skip, okay? Nobody can go to the Gulf. Nobody can eat oysters and shrimp for at least three more weeks, okay? Next week, we're going to look at chapter 3, verse 1. 
And I'm going to talk to you about the time of the last days. What time is it? We'll talk about it. The next week, we're going to look at trends. There's Beginning in verse 2, there's like 18 different characterizations of, of people living in the last day. It gives to us a trend. Now, we're not going to look at every one of them, but I'm going to give you next week three statements that kind of capsules the trend in which we're living. And then the last week, Lord willing, we're going to look at some of the tragedies and some of the triumphs of the last days, okay? Uh, there's going to be a lot of great things in the end, gang. Listen, I, I believe we're living in the end. I'm going to talk more about it last week. There's some great things happening here. Man, people are coming to know Christ. God's stirring hearts. People are wondering about what life really is all about and what eternity is all about. There's some great things. There's some triumphs. But all oh, dear people, somehow in a, in a confusing kind of way, rocking alongside of these triumphs like a railroad track with two tracks, there is some tragedies in some of the people that we know and some of the people that we love. Some of our family members, tragically, are going to wing their flight out into eternity without Jesus Christ. And we as a church must care. Okay? Now, let me tell you what I want to do. I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to... We're going to be in 2 Timothy 3. I'll get there in a minute. But I want to kind of set the stage. So in chapter 1, I want us to read some verses. And in chapter 2, I want us to read some verses as Paul kind of brings Timothy along to chapter 3 when he just slams them with, with some things. Okay, so chapter 1. Don't stand right now. We'll stand in a moment for God's Word. But look at chapter 1. Let's, let's read verse 8. And see if you can kind of get the, I, I said to the first, you got to get the pathos here. You got to place yourself with Paul in prison writing to someone he dearly loves, that he's dearly concerned about, knowing what was about to happen. So get the feeling, if you would. Chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. But no, no notice, Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Look down in verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. I'm convinced he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, he says, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure, which is the gospel he's talking about, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Look, verse 3 and 4. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him to be a soldier. Look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descended of David according to my gospel, which, notice, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God, is not in prison. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain salvation 
which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. There's a whole lot more here, but I think hopefully you've kind of got your head around where Paul is going. He's trying to help Timothy understand. Timothy, you've got to be strong because it's going to be hot in the furnace. Look, look at uh, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Verse 16, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. Uh, verse 23, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. You see, Paul is saying, Timothy, you got to understand what's happening here. And in your understanding of what's happening here, Timothy, you got to be strong. you got to retain a standard. you got to live according to something greater than yourself. Dear people, I want you to know, you've got a choice today. You can live according to your desires. You can live according to your feelings. You can live according to subjective feelings inside your heart. Or you can live according to an external authority, the authority of the Word of God. And I'm going to suggest to you over the next four weeks that any time we step outside the authority of the Word of God, we begin to die. And it's happening all across our nation. And sadly, it's happening in our churches, okay? Now, let me just this morning talk to you. Hey, let me tell you what I wrote down. I just want to share my heart talking to people I love. Now, that may be translated by you. Here goes Tom. He's rambling again, okay? That's okay. I just want to talk to you as I set the stage for the expositions that will be coming in the next few weeks. And I want to begin by making a statement. A believer in Christ must be aware of the cultural context in which we live because the culture impacts the church, whether we like it or not. Can I say that to you again? Guys, it's incredibly important. It's crucially important that we understand the cultural context in which we're living Because the culture is going to impact the church, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not. What's going on in the world today is going to impact us and our children for the future. There's always been evil in this land. I understand that. But I want to tell you guys, I believe we're living in a transitional culture. And the speed of immorality is like a speeding bullet. And soon what I always understood to be evil is going to be the norm of society. You understand what I'm saying to you? Man, there was a day, and I realize I'm a little older than most in this service, except for a few. I remember, it was very clear to me what was right and what was wrong, what was evil and what was not evil. But we're living in a culture where it's all becoming gray, and and, and the speed of immorality, I have never seen the speed of homosexuality like we're seeing it now. You know it's wrong. It's not personal. Man, I, I don't hate anybody. I feel sorry for them. Man, I want to share Jesus with them. Man, I want to encourage I want to love them into the, the kingdom of God, although love only works when you understand the law, the law of sin we've, we've broken. So it's not personal. But gang, listen, your children, and we have godly teachers, so... Teachers, don't stone, tar, and feather me after this. We have godly, I know where you stand. But I'm telling you, your children, my grandchildren are being taught things that as they grow up, 
they're going to think it's going to be normal to be homosexual. And the government's going to support it. And there may even be rules against believing what we believe. We better get our head out of the sand. We better understand the times. Because I'm telling you, the church is going to have to deal with it. And the church, listen to me, the church is going to be impacted by it. There'll be members of churches that have differing values, differing belief standards. Some will end up as leaders and try to lead astray the church to satisfy their sinful hearts and their sensual desires. It's always been that way. But in these last days, it's going to become increasingly worse. And the truth is this. You know this as well as I do. Evil is. Evil always has been regardless uh, has always been evil, regardless of what our culture says. But it's there. And we've got to do it. There's some major questions, I think, facing the church today. Some of the things I'm going to address over the next few weeks. Things like, do we change anything, Tom? Tom is pastor. You going to change anything? Or are you going to let it rock on as it is? How do we, or do we even, engage the culture? Are we to be appealing to a merchandising culture of mass market? You know that many churches are nothing more than shopping malls. You come for a while, spend your money for what you like, what you feel like, and then you, you leave and go to somebody else that has a better marketing plan, and you spend a little time there. I was with my wife and my family this past week. I went down to Gulf Eat Shrimp. And one day my wife woke up and said, Hey, would you take me shopping? I said, What? They got this Tanger Outlet Mall. In Foley, Alabama. I said, we got the beach. She said, yeah, but it's raining. And I said, well, yeah. I mean, I'm an obedient husband. So I took her to the mall. And I want to tell you, gang, I had never seen so many stores all my life. I got into it. There's, do you know, do you know that there's a store in the Tanger Outlet Mall that has nothing but knives, guys? Thousands of knives. All kinds of knives. There's an Adidas store, and there's a Nike store, and there's a Patagonia store, and there's... And I, she went in one store, I, came, I, I went in there, I came out, and I had some shoes, and I had some pants, I had four shirts. She looked at me, and she said, I said, Paul, it's everywhere. <laughs> and, and she said, well... well what, what are we going to do? I said, where do we go now? And she said, well, I guess we just go back to the house. There's shops everywhere. We can't go yet. A lot of churches are like malls. You go for a while and you get your fill. You spend a little money. Then you come out and there's always somebody with a better marketing scheme. But you listen, gang, that doesn't mean that the churches have biblical convictions. And only biblical convictions, only those who are based upon the authority of the Word of God, can radically transform your life. And nobody else, nothing else can do that except the Bible. I want to give you a personal statement. I, I want to share something very personal that, that, that I need to do. Um, those of you, the, the, the danger, there's a blessing about staying just two or three years in a church. You know that. 
you get out there and you share, you make your mistakes, then you throw away the mistakes, go to another church, and then you share. The bad thing about staying a long time is everybody knows your mistakes. You may not even know this was a mistake, but I feel like if I'm going to deal with this subject, I need to be open with you. I made a statement from our pulpit several years ago that I would to God, I would have not made, or at least made in a different way. The first thing I said was that the message we share must never change. That's true. That was good. If I'd have kept my mouth shut and sat down, you'd have got out in time to go, you could have beat the Methodist to the white meat and it would have been good, okay? I said that the message must never change. I believe that to my core. This day stronger than anything. The message that we have about Jesus and his blood and his righteousness and the kingdom of God and the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross and the forgiveness of sin upon the earth. None of that should ever change. And God willing, kill me if it ever does, it'll never change here. But I said something that would to God I had not said. The methods we use must be adopted, must be changed, adapted, to connect with our changing world. And oh, dear people, I wish I had never said that. I believe I was so wrong with that. You see, God gives us the message from the Word. God gives us the method from the Word. And through this period of time, there's been moments when we've tried to adapt who we are, what we believe, to try to make it appealing to a lost world. Let me tell you what I've learned. I've learned that if the fundamentals are wrong, then the methods will end up being wrong, even if the intentions or the desires are good. If the fundamentals are wrong, then the methods ultimately will be wrong as well. We've tried to make the gospel appealing. We've tried to make the church appealing to the community. We've tried marketing. We've tried Wall Street advertising. We've tried pop psychology. We've tried social interaction. We've tried feel-good, felt-need medicines. And the truth is that the church today is in a nosedive. And the reason it is is because those techniques never ultimately work. They're void of biblical truth. And history has proven it. The pragmatic model of church growth, which is nothing more than consumerism, has failed. We've jettisoned the biblical approach and the authority of the Bible alone as foundational. And dear people, we're reaping what we've sowed. And as I get older... There's more of me that just wants, wants to get back to the Bible and not much else. Some of you, some of our teachers have been challenged a little bit by the change of our Sunday school classes. I understand that. I respect that. I've addressed that to you over the course of the last few months. And what we've done is we've challenged you. And in fact, we've actually said to Don, did this, I didn't do this. So if you're mad, get mad at Don. What, we, what we've done is we've said we're going back to the Bible. All this felt-need stuff, all this Band-Aid stuff, all this powdering of rear-end stuff that seems to be filtering through, we, we're not doing that anymore. 
unashamedly, we're saying to our teachers, you either teach the Bible or we'll find somebody else that we will. We'll try to do our best to help you. We've got a long ways to go there, but, 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 but we're doing the Bible. And as they get older, I wish we'd just get more and more back to the Bible and all this other stuff laid aside. We've tried to make the gospel of Jesus Christ appealing, but now listen to me, beloved. The gospel is not. It never has been appealing. And it's that very truth that it's unappealing is what makes it appealing to those who are sick in need of a Savior, you see. God's Word's never been appealing to the masses, no matter the techniques you use. But its very convicting nature that turns off the majority is the very thing that attracts the minority. Jesus called them the sick ones who need a hospital, the sick ones who need a doctor, the sick ones who need medicine. Here's a thought. Maybe we should throw away the attractional model. Maybe we ought to stay with God's Word. And maybe we ought to let the Spirit does what He desires to do, no matter how big we may be or how small we may end up. Now, we may not look like, we may not smell like, we may not sound like the world, but gang, listen, the world is dead. I, uh, I read a statistic this week. Let me, let me give it to you. In, in the 1950s, mainline Protestant denominations... Now, what I mean by mainline Protestant denominations are Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterian, uh, Episcopalian, Lutherans. That, when, when they group uh, religious groups, there is the Protestants over here and Catholics over here. Okay? And so what this survey said was in the 50s, the mainline Protestant denomination comprised... About 45% of the U.S. population, non-Catholic U.S. population, in the 50s, 45% of these main denominations were made up in their churches. They did a survey five years ago. Mainline denominations now are down to 10 to 12%. And if the trend continues, they're saying that in 30 years... Mainline denominations will cease to exist. Now, let me, let me add, not the church. Jesus established the church. Jesus built the church. The church is always going to exist in some form, right? But I'm talking about a group of people, groups of people, that have always been the mainline distributors of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a nation and to a world. I don't know if you realize, many of you didn't grow up Southern Baptist. Listen to me. Nobody shares the gospel like Southern Baptists share the gospel. Nobody's, we got 5,000 missionaries all over the world, my son included, that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody has ever done that. And yet in 10 or 30 years, they say, it'll cease to exist. You know one thing we've learned from history? We've learned that when biblical authority is diluted and when worldly techniques are adopted, the church dies. Huh? And when we move away from biblical exposition, when we move away from text-driven messages, when we go out and get an idea, come up with a topic, and then try to find some verses to fit into it, 
when we throw away text-driven messages, then we begin to die. We begin to adopt religious homilies, liturgical lectures on life challenges, void of biblical convictions that make people squirm in their seat. And we become a social gathering and nothing more. You see, I believe the challenge to you teachers and the challenge to us preachers is that we get our messages from this word. We get our outlines from this word. We tell you, open up your iPad and look at what these verses say. That's biblical exposition. That's exegetical messages from the text. And when we cease that, all we have left are homilies and liturgical lectures, and we begin to die. And the church becomes a social gathering. We ought to just call it a country club because there's nothing eternal. There's nothing transformational when it becomes like that. I wrote down here, you ought to go home every Sunday bothered. You see, when I study... When I write a sermon, I ought to be convicted. I ought to be bothered by what I've studied. I ought to be bothered by what I write. I ought to be bothered by what I preach. And I believe that when you leave these doors, I ought to have said something to you that bothers you. Not tick you off, well, maybe, but not that so much, but bothered. Where am I with God? Am I walking with what's happening to a nation that has always had its foundations upon the Word of God? What's happened to us? No more will I allow that. We ought to be bothered by it, you see. I read an interesting story about a whaling boat many years ago got stuck on some icebergs during the night. In the morning, they, they woke up and they sighted a ship. And so they got in a little dinghy and they went over to the ship and they began to holler out, ahoy, ahoy, no response. So they crawled up on the ship, they looked, and they saw the captain sitting in his office, writing in a logbook, frozen to death. They, they walked around the ship, and they saw frozen soldiers, sailors frozen, not soldiers, sailors frozen on the deck. According to the last entry, the ship had been floating on the Arctic seas for 13 years. It looked alive, it floated alive, but it was all frozen. Oh, God help the church that floats along frozen. Timothy says, Paul, know this, that in the last days difficult times are going to come. And it's going to get hotter, Timothy. People will brazenly turn away from God. Avoid them, Timothy. But all, Timothy, suffer with me. Remember what you've learned, and the Scriptures will equip you for every good work. You see, beloved, at the end of the day, when the dust settles and the curtain's pulled, the only thing that lasts, the only thing that's transformational, is the Word of God. It's not who's the president. It's not who is running Congress. It's not the justices that are making decisions about the Constitution. 
The bottom line for your life and my life and the church's life is the Word of God. And we've got to come to terms with that. It's going to, this culture is going to impact the church and it's going to have an influence on us. And we've got to determine what our limits are. We've got to determine what we will say yes to, what we will say no to, what we will accept, and what we will not accept. That's going to be my theme. In the back on your way out, we have a booth set up. It's for voter registration. And it, I'm not into politics. I don't care whether you're Republican or Democrat or Independent. Um, that's your business. But I want to, and like I said, remind me, let me remind you, this isn't about politics. This is about spiritual thing, the Word of God. But let me tell you, one of the straight, strong voices you have is in voting. It's registering and voting. Gang, we keep putting the same people back in who keep spending money we don't have. You, have you ever thought about it? I mean, think about it this way. Let's take it home. Say, for example, you take your credit card and you buy, you go to Wally World and you buy bread and milk. And you keep doing that. At some point, someone's going to knock on your door. And they're going to smile at you and say, hey, you're one of our best customers. But we've noticed something. We're not getting anything. For, we're giving you an awful lot. We're not getting anything from you. Now, listen, I, I don't mean that you don't need to borrow money to buy a car if you need a car or a house. You know, you've got to fit it into a budget. You understand what I'm saying, but listen to me. If you charge for bread and milk and charge for bread and milk and you don't pay it off, guess what? You're going to get a visit. And everyone in here would say, you're right, I can't keep... There may be moments in my life, there may be binds in my life where I have to, but don't we all know that you got to get it paid off, at least that paid off? And yet we elect politicians who borrow, not for essential needs, but for bread and milk. We're borrowing money from China for bread and milk and we keep letting them do it. We keep raising the debt limit because we need more bread and milk. No, we don't. And the, one of the strongest powers you have is to register and vote and vote for someone who actually thinks and talks and, and lives like they believe the Bible. The Bible says, oh, no man, anything. Love, see? The Bible hasn't. We're going to start Sunday school lessons next week in Proverbs. I would suggest if you're not in Sunday school, let us help you get in a class. You need what Solomon says in Proverbs. You can't, nation, America, you can't keep borrowing money for bread and milk and not get a knock on your door. And lo and behold, it's China. Does that make sense to you? Well, it kind of ticks me off. It don't make sense to old Tom. It all boils down to what we believe about God. Next week, we're going to talk about the time in which we live. The next week, we're going to talk about the trends that we're living in. And then we'll conclude it. I'm going to give you some steps. In the last message, I'll give you some, some steps to maybe um, um, evaluate your life by, okay? That's all I got. Kids' church going to wonder why we're letting out so early. If they ask you, say, I, we listened really fast, okay? 
Let's pray, and Stu, would you come, and we're going to take a moment. Maybe today is a day for you just to pray and say, God, I, I, I need to look at my life. Maybe today you realize, you know, this thing called the cross um, is not real in your life, and you want it to be, or maybe you're looking for a church. I, that's your business. We'd love to have you. We're going to pray and stand. We'll pray and then stand. I started to say, let's stand and pray, but let's pray and stand. And then Stu will lead us. If God has spoken to your heart, we'll give you a moment to respond. Father, I love you. God, I love your word. I love your Bible. God, I want to be a pastor that believes it and lives it and teaches it and preaches it. And to, to do that, we need your Holy Spirit. Not just, to, not just to impact the mind and the mouth of a preacher, but to impact the ears of the listeners. <coughs> These are beautiful times, but according to next week's text, they're savage times, and we've got to be ready. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for these that have here come today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Stu and the team will lead us.